So Genesis 15 is where we'll be tonight. Genesis 15, I called this sermon the land covenant. Because in this chapter, God is going to make a covenant with Abraham. This is the first um, time that a covenant is cut as, as it's used in the Hebrew. It says made in our English translations. It's called to cut a covenant in the Hebrew. And it's interesting as it relates to this story, and you'll see why when we get through it. But uh, if you remember, I, I told you kind of the, the organization of Abraham's life is around these three things. And it's why I, I titled this sermon series this, A Land, A Seed, A Blessing. And these are the three things in Genesis 12 that the Lord promises to Abram. He promises him that he will have a land. He promises him that he will have a seed. And he promises him that he will be blessed. And so the organization of Abram's life is around those three things. And what we're coming to here is the end of the land piece of the promise. Now, Abram knows he's not going to receive it in his lifetime. And we'll see that in, in, the, in the message tonight. Um, but, but when we end this section, the very next thing that happens is Abram and Sarai's human way of trying to make a child, right? They don't wait on the Lord for his promise of a child between the two of them. What, is, what happens? Well, Sarai gives Abram Hagar. That's the very next thing. So we'll see that in Genesis 16. But where we're at now is the wrap-up of the land uh, covenant. Okay, And each of these sections of Abram's life end, interestingly, with a covenant. And sometimes people don't know what to make about that because he keeps getting covenants made with him. I think it's because each one relates to a different portion of the promise. And tonight we'll see the land covenant. Okay, now it starts with a promise. Remember what had happened in Genesis 13 and 14. We had the war of the kings. We had the war of the four kings against the five kings from these eastern kingdoms coming down and fighting in the Jordan Valley, right? And remember, Lot was kidnapped, and Abram goes and defeats those kings and brings Lot back. And the Lord is letting Abram see the land that will one day belong to him and his descendants, okay? So that's where we ended. And remember, it ended with this mysterious peace with Melchizedek. And, and Melchizedek blesses Abram, and then Abram gives him a tenth, which is an odd thing. And that story is wrapped up um, there. Okay, so Genesis 15 opens this way. Remember, he's already been promised these three things. He's been promised a land. He's been promised a seed, right, a descendant. And he's been promised a blessing, so this is where it opens. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you, and your reward shall be very great. Now, here's what's interesting. The account we just read was the account of Abram at war, Abram the warrior, going back, defeating the kings he was fighting against, and bringing back his nephew and all the spoils. And remember what Abram said to the king of Sodom? He says, I will not take anything from your hand. I will not take the spoils because I will not let anyone say that they have made Abram rich. It is the Lord who made me rich, right? Who made me prosperous. And he's not going to let anyone take the credit for what God has done. So the Lord gives him this word in response to that. The things Abram has foregone, his reward, God says, no, 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 you're still going to get a reward. But it's going to be from me, right? He says, I am your shield. That's a war term, isn't it? 
You don't just walk around carrying a shield for no reason. It's not just like your daily attire. That's a symbol of war. The Lord is telling him, just like Melchizedek blessed him, the Lord has given your enemies into your hand. Remember, that's what Melchizedek said to him. The Lord has, has given your oppressors into your hand, Abram. And so here he says, guess what, Abram? I am your shield. I'm the one who protected you in this, in this last chapter when we saw this war. I am telling you, Abram, your reward will be great. The things you've forgone in this life, they will be great. Right? Not in an earthly way, but from God. Right? They will come from God. So, Abram, though, Abram, though, has a complaint. And this is interesting because his complaint is very legitimate, right? It's a very legitimate complaint. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. The Lord says, you're going to have all these great rewards. And Abram says, reward? What reward could be worth it? I have no one to give my life to, no one to give my inheritance to. I am a, a, dry, a dry twig, right? That's the language the Bible uses. I, I, can't, I can't have a child of my own. Remember the quintessential problem Genesis talked about in the line was that Sarai was barren. A significant problem when Genesis is sculpted around what? Genealogy. Right? We're walking down the line of people. We started at Adam, and we're walking down the line of genealogy. And when we get to Abram, uh-oh, big problem. He has no kids. The genealogy, the line of the people of choice, the, the, the people who are God's chosen, the line of the elect, if you will, ends with Abram, because he has no kids. Where will the promise go next? And so the Lord says to him, Excuse me, and Abram continues. Since you have given no offspring to me, one who was born in my house is my heir. I don't have a child of my own, right? The Lord responds to him. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And the Lord took Abram outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. They will be numberless. They will be overwhelming in their number. And what was Abram's response? This is a promise, isn't it? This is a promise from the Lord. I am going to make you great. I will make your name great. And you will have many beyond numbered descendants, right? You, it, will, it will be impossible to number them. What's Abram's response? He believed in the Lord and the Lord reckoned it to him. It credited, credited it to him as righteousness. Very significant. So this is a promise. This is the first half of this account in Genesis 15. It's really focused on what? The seed portion, right? This is all about the child. But there hasn't been a covenant made about this child. This is a promise of the child to come. And not only of the child to come, but all the children that will come from Abram, right? But Abram, interestingly, like a prophet, by the way, did you notice? The word of the Lord came to him. 
That's a prophetic term. That's the term used over and over in the prophets when the word comes to them, when they're given a vision or when they're given understanding. When they're given what? Revelation. The Lord is revealing to Abram what is going to happen in his future, what is going to become of his line. So like a prophet, Abram is receiving this. He's receiving this vision. This is significant because this will be the first person when we get to Genesis 20, Abram is the first person in Scripture to be called a prophet. The very first. Abram's a prophet. And he's receiving the word of the Lord. So, here, Abram gets this wonderful prophetic promise of what's going to become of him. And what's he do? He believes it. He believes it. In Hebrew, he amans it. Maybe that doesn't sound familiar. Aman is the Hebrew term for believing or to confirm something. It's where we get our term, amen. Amen. Abram amens God. So when we are praying and we all at the end of the prayer, we all go, amen. You know what we're saying? We're saying, I, I believe this. I confirm it. I, I am in agreement with it. That's why we use that term, that Hebrew term. Because we're saying, I confirm it, I believe it. Abram here amens God. And that amening God is credited to him as righteousness. Now what's unique about this is that throughout the earlier chapters, we've seen a few figures who are called righteous. We saw Noah was called righteous before God. This is the first time we're seeing something and rarely in the Old Testament this is mentioned, but it's explicitly mentioned here in Genesis 15, that it's not saying that Abram was righteous, though he was a righteous man. It's saying it was credited to him as righteousness. See, this is why Paul picks up on this language in the New Testament and applies it to New Covenant faith. Because Abram has the correct response to revelation. He has the correct response to revelation. The new covenant faith that we are saved by, right? That we're saved through. The new covenant faith that we are saved through is this kind of faith. It is belief in response to revelation that is credited to us as righteousness. Now, the New Testament, obviously, one of the problems is that the New Testament doesn't end there, and sometimes people think that it ends there. No, God actually wants us to become righteous, right? It doesn't end that you're credited as righteousness. You're actually called to become righteous. But the beginning of the process starts here. Abram, the father of faith, that's what Paul's going to say, right? The father of all the faithful in Romans. Abram showed us a way of life a way, a model to imitate, right? Because he believes the Lord at his word. He takes the, the Lord at his word. And in doing so, he is proclaimed righteous. That's the same method for us. Jesus is revelation. He is the revelation of the Father. And to believe in that revelation to take God at his word, that our sins are forgiven, that he has, has cleansed us, that he has saved us, to take God at his word is to amen his revelation. That's how we do it. 
And in the same vein as Abram, so too it's credited us. It's credited to us as righteousness. That's why Paul picks up on that language. He sees this happening, and what's really significant about it happening in Genesis is what? It's prior to the law. Abram receives righteousness as a credit prior to the law. And that's why Paul makes such a big deal about the order in which these things happened. Abram was righteous prior to the law. He was, he was vindicated, he was justified by faith before the law. Very significant New Testament. And that's why this verse, Genesis 15:6, is so significant to the New Testament. Abram is the father of all the faithful. And we too enter into faith in the same way as Abram. And what's really significant, this has always been the way to righteousness. Always. Even when the law was enacted, even when the law was in in place, a faithful Jew, a faithful Israelite, was righteous by faith. All the saints of every age have always been faithful by the fact that they have trusted in the Lord at his word, that they have believed in him, they have amened him at his revelation, whatever it was at the time. So us in the new covenant, we have more revelation than they ever did because we've seen Christ. We've seen who he is and his spirit has been offered to us. And so we have the ability, we have the right to respond in faith. And by doing so, that's credited to us as righteousness, just like Abram. And of course, once we've been credited as righteous, our goal is then to become righteous, to truly become righteous people, to live a life of good works and honoring God and and trying to follow his commandments, not just responding well to revelation, But then the next step is, of course, to what? Obey what he tells us, right? To obey what he would tell us. Okay, this is the first half of the narrative. He receives this promise, and he's shown to be the father of faith, right? He receives the promise, and he believes it. Okay, then there's a second half to this chapter. So the Lord said to him, the Lord said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, to possess it. See the change? We were talking about the seed, and he got a promise for the seed. He did not get a covenant. He was promised a seed. Now we're moving to the land. It's clear we've changed. He says, now, not only have I promised you a seed, but I want you to know, I promise to give you this land. I'm promising to give you this land. It will be yours to possess. And so Abram responds in a similar way as he did in the first account, right? In the first part. He says, Lord, how am I going to know that I will possess it? This is not a statement of doubt. It's actually a statement of trust. He's saying, show me. How will I know, Lord? This is not him saying, "I, I just don't doubt it. If only I had a sign, I'd believe it. We just saw him. He's the man of faith. This is him asking the Lord to show him something. Because he trusts them. Because he trusts them. And the Lord's response is to offer him a covenant. And that's what we're going to see for the rest of the chapter. How, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? And the Lord said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer 
and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all of these out to the Lord and cut them in two. And he laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they, meaning your descendants, will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces of the carcasses, right? Between those pieces. Now this is a mysterious rite. Many people don't know what to make of it. And really, scholars have argued over it for a long time about what is being said. They've tried to find parallels in history for, for different people who would do covenants like this. They've tried to find it. And, and they've tried to use it to explain that Hebrew term, cutting a covenant, right? Well, they cut the pieces. And the best explanation they've come up with is to say that to walk between those pieces is to say something to the effect of, may it be done to me like these carcasses, if I break the covenant, right? Okay, that's, the, that's usually the best explanation scholars have for it. The problem is, it does not seem like the Lord would need to say, may it be done to me, if I, if I don't keep my end of the covenant. I think it's pretty clear God's going to keep his end of the covenant, and he knows as much. I think a better explanation is to think about what we know in terms of literarily, Right? What we've been reading. When we talked about Genesis 12, what was Abram doing? Remember this story of, of Sarai getting taken by Pharaoh and, and then God protects her and she's released and then Abram's made rich and they come out of land. Abram is reenacting his, or excuse me, pre-enacting, as I called it, the word I made up. He's pre-enacting what's going to happen to his descendants, right? Biblical theology language uses the term typology. This is a type. Okay? He's pre-enacting it. Before his people will go through it, he goes through it. And the best imagery of this is what are the carcasses that are split apart? Interestingly enough, it's a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. What are those five animals have in common with the scriptures? They're the only animals suitable for sacrifice. They're the only animals that make sense in the sacrificial system of Israel. Abram brings one animal of every type of sacrifice, that, of the animals at least, that would be okay for Israel to use. And then splits them apart. In the cultic system of Israel, what do the sacrifices represent? 
they actually represent Israel. Don't they? Because they're taking the sins of Israel and paying for them so that the people don't have to. Right? That's the idea of the sacrificial system is that because the sacrifice is bearing the weight of sin, the people don't have to. That's the idea behind it. So when these pieces are laid out, I think the best ex explanation is that this is representing Israel. Okay, well, what's this flaming oven and, and all this fire? Well, how did the Lord present himself to the people of Israel in the Exodus? Yeah. As a pillar of fire. And a burning bush. Sorry. Yeah, with Moses as a burning bush. But for the people of Israel, he's a pillar of fire. Yes. And when he walks through the pieces, what is the Lord representing? Him dwelling among his people. He's in the midst of his people. And, and I, it makes sense in the text because what's the very next thing the Lord explains the vision as? He says, I want you to know what's going to happen. Your descendants will go and be strangers in a land that is not theirs. But in the fourth generation, right, 400 years from now, after slavery, I will bring them out. I'll bring them out and bring them back to this land. And it, they will take possession of it, right? That's, that's the whole point. Everything the Lord explains in the vision makes sense of the vision. This is Israel and God walking among it. It's a vision. It's a, it's a, it's a right that is representing what's going to happen to Israel in the future. And Abram is getting a prophetic vision of what's going to happen to his descendants. They will be here represented by the sacrifices and the Lord will walk among his people again. Right? Just like we saw in the Garden of Eden when he used to walk. Israel's supposed to be that new Eden, that Edenic place where the Lord dwells with his people. That's the whole point of the imagery of tabernacle and temple. That the Lord is in the midst of his people. That's what this vision's about too. That the Lord will be with his people. The Lord will be there. So on that day, the Lord cut a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. All these people that have filled the land, right? They're going to be defeated. They're going to be knocked out. Like he had said earlier, their, their iniquity is not yet complete. They're going to go on sinning for 400 years while Israel is enslaved. While Israel is enslaved in Egypt, these Amorites, they use that term generally for all these people, these Amorites are all going to be punished for their great sin. And who's going to do the punishment? Well, the nation of Israel is going to come and defeat them when they come in the time of Joshua to conquer the land and take possession of it. But what's significant here is that the Lord has made a covenant. And what's the purpose of the covenant? It's to promise the land. He's covenanted with the Lord. The Lord and Abram have covenanted that the land will be Abram's. And once the covenant has been made, once the covenant has been sealed, and, and a it's been... It's been documented by the right of the Lord walking through the pieces. Our focus immediately changes 
to the promise of the child when we get to next week in Genesis 16, right? The land covenant has happened. It's assured. It's going to take place. So immediately, the next part of Abram's life is centered on the seed. The seed. That's the very next thing we turn to. All right. That's all I have for you tonight. We can talk about next week about uh, Sarai and Hagar. But um, what's significant about this is Abram, the man of faith, he's receiving these covenants and, and they are for him, right? But they don't necessarily come to fulfillment in his lifetime. Now he's going to receive a seed, right? He's going to get Isaac. But the land promise is 400 years in the future. Abram's given a covenant about it. He's promised it, but it's not to happen in his life. He's going to live in peace and die at a good old age, but it will be four generations. And they're obviously using generations as hundred year periods, right? 400 years, four generations, and they will come back. But before Abram can receive the covenant of the seed, which we'll see in chapter 17, we first have to see a human response, a, a human way of trying to reckon with God's promise, a human way of trying to make God's promise come true. Uh, without waiting on God, without waiting for him to move, but instead trying to take it into uh, the hands of humans. And we're going to see that next week in Genesis 16. All right, let me bless you. Lord, I pray you'd be with each person tonight, Lord. Would you help them to... Grow in faithfulness, grow in their love of you, Lord, and the things that you've promised to them in their lives. God, would you bring to fruition? Would you bring them to pass uh, as we wait and hope for your promises on, on a grand scale as we wait for Jesus' return and the consummation of all things? And we long for that day, Lord. And yet at the same time, there are many promises you've promised to each of us as individuals as well. And Lord, would you bring those to pass to help us to not try to bring them about in our own ways, as we're going to talk about next week, uh, but would we wait on your promise? Would we be like Abram, a man of faith, and trust, trust in you? Would we amen your promises? And I pray that for each person here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.